Hello and welcome back to Pod 45, the podcast companion to Post 45 Contemporaries. I'm your host, Contemporaries co-editor, Michael Doherty. Today it's my pleasure to be joined by Annabelle Barry and Caroline Goddard to discuss our recent cluster on heteropessimism, which they co-edited alongside Jane Ward. At Contemporaries, of course, we love all our cluster children equally, but as an editor, this one was a real delight to work on, so I'm very pleased we're able to dig into it a little further in this conversation. I'll now let my guests, Annabelle and Caroline, introduce themselves to you. I'm Annabelle Barry, and I'm a PhD student in English at the University of California, Berkeley, and I'm recording this in Berkeley, California. I'm Caroline Goddard. I am also a PhD student at UC Berkeley. I'm in the French department, and I too am recording in Berkeley, California. Thank you both, and thank you both so much for joining me. I'm delighted to be discussing this cluster on heteropessimism that we published a couple of months back. Um, I thought before we get into the cluster itself, it might be worth starting with some kind of basic questions of of definition, perhaps for the benefit of anyone listening to this who hasn't yet read the cluster, although obviously we're hoping they will go away and, and do so after listening to this episode. So when we use this term heteropessimism, uh, what are we talking about here? What are the origins of this term? What kind of work is this term doing? Can you give us a kind of definitional starting point here? I think the question of definition is a great one because that's sort of what we were hoping to press on um, in our cluster. Um, and a lot of our contributors are sort of redefining or testing the definition of heteropessimism. Um, but it really starts with Asa Saracen's 2019 essay on heteropessimism, which defines heteropessimism as... Um, as affects or as performative statements that announce the speaker's emotional disaffiliation with conventional heterosexuality without um, then the speaker going on and um, relinquishing heterosexuality as a practice or trying to transform or challenge any of its terms. Um, Caroline, is there anything you would add on to that? starting point, I would just further add that, um, yeah, as Annabelle said, we, we were trying to add more to the definition of heteropessimism from when it originally appeared, but also we had the sense just being online on social media that a lot of people have taken up the term heteropessimism in colloquial just conversations, um, and oftentimes obscuring or misunderstanding the original definition. So what a lot of people on social media are using as heteropessimism are more just in a, in a more, um, yeah, colloquial understanding of heteropessimism as, oh, I'm disappointed in heterosexuality. But I think that it's important to go back to Asa Saracen's terminology originating from these sorts of utterances. Um, and yeah, that's something that we were hoping to kind of explore in this cluster. Um, but of course, I think that just because people are using heteropessimism differently on social media doesn't mean that it's necessarily wrong. Um, it's what's so interesting about this concept is that it's so new and people, you know, around the world in different ways and different media forms are adding and complicating the definition um, and they, as they have been for the past few years. Yeah, and then one more thing I would add is that in our introduction, we really tried to ground Saracen's concept in 
the queer theory and affect theory that it comes out of. So what Saracen is terming pessimism um, in our reading is actually closer to what Lauren Berlant would have called cruel optimism, which is a an inability to relinquish something that is impairing one's thriving. So we wanted to emphasize the idea that heteropessimism is not a giving up of heterosexuality. It's actually a structure for maintaining attachment to many of its terms. Um, sometimes it can be seen as a sort of pressure valve that allows the, um, the formation, um, of heterosexuality to continue existing. Mm. Yes, I think that comes through very clearly in the in the cluster, and I, I do like very much how you and and many of the contributors there you're all working with Saracen's original definition, but as you say, expanding it, moving beyond it in some ways, and in the case of some of the pieces, kind of actively uh, challenging it, but still in a way that's kind of productive and, and generative. Um, you've already said a little bit there that that part of the kind of motivation for the cluster was this question of of definition. Um, but could you perhaps say a little bit more about um, the origins of the cluster, other motivations for for trying to bring this set of essays together? Again, um, so honestly, a lot of the origins of our interest and my interest in heteropessimism began with a lot of the members and contributors to the cluster. So. I um, was kind of online friends with Chiara Giovanni, who is one of the contributors to the cluster. And back in summer of 2021, she started posting on Twitter, oh, there's this interesting concept called heteropessimism. And she started posting a ton of links to articles and listicles that were discussing it. Um, and that's how I originally heard about the term was through uh, Chiara's Twitter presence and from further talking to her about it. Um, and then I was one of my roommates the following year was Sean Lambert, who's also a contributor to the cluster. And I just remember having a ton of conversations with him over dinners, just, you know, um, just casual chats. Like we were just, we couldn't get this off our mind. We kept talking about it. We kept circling around this idea. We were really interested in it. And then Annabelle and I, in January of 2022, were on our second date, and I brought up the term heteropessimism. <laughs> I don't remember what the context was, but I basically was like, yeah, there's this term, Sean and I can't stop thinking about it. And Annabelle very, um, you know, very brilliantly connected it to Milton. Do you want to take this over? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I was um, I was saying because Caroline has interest in the early modern period, and, and I'm also really interested in Milton. And I was saying this sort of reminds me of, of Paradise Lost. And it reminds me um, in the sense that um, in there in many sort of um, literary texts, there seems to be this heteropessimist um, maybe form in which um, the text explore discontent with conventional heterosexuality in order to discipline their characters into mm. ultimately accepting it. Um, or they ex their characters um, or their plots explore alternatives to heterosexuality, but then heterosexuality in its conventional form is how the text resolves in the end. Um, and so... I, and then, I love yeah and Mil yeah, Milton <laughs> yeah 
No, I was just going to say that in Milton, you were specifically referring to the moment when Eve looks at her reflection, right? Yeah. So when Eve is born in Paradise Lost, she the first thing she sees is the reflection of herself in a pool. And she becomes really enchanted with her own reflection. Um, and it's almost this sort of proto-lesbian moment mm-hmm. where she's saying, wow, um, this is such a beautiful person. I really want to be with this person. And it's one of the few moments in the text that God directly intervenes in what Adam and Eve are doing. And a voice comes down and has to reorient her and move her towards Adam and sort of to redirect her attention. Um, And she sees him and her first response is, oh, um, he's not as compelling to me. Like his body is not as soft. Um, And, but she's sort of directed by the text and also directly by God in this moment of divine intervention um, into heterosexuality. And so it's a formation that even for Milton is something that has to be explained um, or it has to, we have to sort of reconcile the tendency to um, be pessimistic about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm I'm really glad that you've taken us into the, the early modern kind of um, (laughs) prehistory or long history of of this idea before it had a name. I mean, one of the, uh, I love, uh, I love all the pieces in the cluster, but I really enjoy um, Katie Cadu's um, foray into the early modern and even, even kind of late medieval uh, literature with kind of the, uh, the the sort of the sonnet form and and the kind of the the lover's complaint uh, going back um, through through kind of English early modern literary tradition then back to, to Dante and Petrarch as um, as this kind of starting point um, for where we might get to this from. Um, Something we should probably say before we go any further is that, of course, you, you co-edited this this cluster with um, with the great scholar Jane Ward, um, whose um, the tragedy of heterosexuality is just kind of one of the best things I've I've ever read in in kind of any sphere. <laughs> Um, could you perhaps say a little bit, as, as Jane can't be with us today, about uh, what Jane's role was in in um, editing the cluster with you? had her pessimism a lot um, in early 2022. And then Annabelle in April or so sent me the call for papers or call for applications for the essay clusters for post 45. And she kind of jokingly was like, we should, we should apply to this. (laughs) So we sat down one night and we, um, we wrote our little pitch and then we invited Jane Ward to, um, to be a co-editor once our pitch was accepted because we just really admired her work as well. And we thought she'd be a really good addition to the cluster, especially because we really wanted to bring in other disciplines and perspectives into the cluster. And um, both of us come from literary backgrounds, literary disciplines, and we thought it would be really strong to have a sociological perspective Mm -hmm. as well, especially because a lot of work in feminism and feminist studies is coming out of um, the social sciences these days as well. And um, Jane's book, I mean, it's really foundational in this field of something like critical heterosexuality studies, but it's also something that influenced our thinking a lot um, when we were beginning to explore this concept. Um, And so it was really a dream of ours to be able to, you know, work with and collaborate with with Jane as a full co-editor. We co-wrote the introduction together. Um, We 
did a lot of, we co-wrote the comments um, as we were editing people's uh, first drafts. Um, and we really composed this cluster together. Um, so she's, I mean, her work obviously is influential and you can see that it's cited by many of the contributors. Um, but it was also just a wonderful working relationship. Yeah. And, and for me as the, the kind of editor on the post 45 end of this, I mean, that was kind of, that was manifestly obvious just going through the, the pieces. I had so, so little to do in terms of, uh, you know, comments and, and suggestions for revision because you could tell they'd already been a product of this incredibly kind of dialogic process, not just between the three of you as co-editors, but between um, the contributors with each other. Uh, we always like it when, when clusters kind of have that kind of internal dialogue and that's really kind of rich and, and genuine in um in this cluster which i think perhaps speaks to some of your earlier points about kind of uh knowing at least some of the contributors personally and thinking and talking about these issues before you even came to think about uh kind of making making this cluster around it sort of to return to definitional questions for just a second really something that you note in your introduction is that in in more recent years um asa saracen has kind of moved away from heteropessimism as a term in favor of, of heterofatalism. Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts on kind of what that distinction means and why when you came to plan this cluster, you felt that heteropessimism was still the term that you primarily wanted to work with? Yeah, I can, I can begin to answer that. Um, yeah, so I think the reason why we stuck with the term heteropessimism was simply because we were responding to uh, the mass amounts of discussion that were already existing online around this term. Um, and I think what Annabelle said earlier about heteropessimism being sort of a form of cruel optimism, it kind of, I don't know, Annabelle, if you have any different ideas, please share them. But for me, it almost feels like Obviously, the term is important and there, there are, you know, etymological differences, um, between heterofatalism and heteropessimism. But also at the end of the day, I think that it kind of speaks to the same thing that is to an attachment to heterosexuality. Um, that, you know, despite all of its, um, all of its problems, et cetera, et cetera. So that is, that is what I would have to say as a response to that. I don't know if you have any different opinions, Annabelle. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the cluster is sort of striking a, maybe a fine line between um, reaffirming a concept and questioning it. And in order to do that kind of questioning, it seemed appropriate to use the term that has been most prevalent mm -hmm. Um, because that is where the sort of conceptual energies and conversations have clustered. Um, and in so doing to question, you know, what does that term mean? Why, and, and one of the questions we have, um, is why has that term stuck despite the effort of people, including Saracen, but, but not only Saracen to, um, to come up with a more appropriate term? What is it that is so, compelling about that original formulation of pessimism and the sort of almost minor affect as opposed to the kind of intensity of fatalism that it suggests. Yes, yes. Well, just leading on from that, when when we published the, the cluster, um, the, the response was, was very warm and very enthusiastic, which 
um, and deservedly so, which I was delighted to to see. But just sort of following um, like comments on Twitter and that kind of thing, there was one one note that I picked up from from one one poster who I, I was not somebody I recognised. Now I can't recall who it was. I, I'm not really using the platform formerly known as, as Twitter anymore. But um, th- this this one note of critique that I that I read was essentially it wasn't even really a critique of the cluster so much as the term itself, which is. The suggestion really was that heteropessimism is somehow co-opting a kind of um, etymological genealogy from Afro-pessimism, that a, a theoretical formation that is primarily being used to think about people in positions of relative privilege is somehow, as I say, making this kind of verbal or etymological co-optation from a discipline that kind of exists to think through the kind of the trauma and the pain of marginalized people. Um, in terms of your knowledge of kind of the, the, the formation of heteropessimism as a kind of idea, as a, uh, a way of thinking, um, sort of post, post-Saracen's 2019 piece, is there a kind of um, a deliberate connection there, a deliberate echoing? Um, well, and you, some, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Caroline, but I do think there is at least some kind of deliberate affinity that was suggested by Saracen in some of his early writings. I believe this is in the, the essay on heteropessimism um, between these terms. And that that is something that Saracen really wanted to revise. Um, so mm. revising not only the fact that these terms sound the same, but that there was a suggestion of a kind of structural analogy, which is not only problematic for all of the ways that um, in all the ways that you are describing, but that's also not really accurate, that these um, concepts are completely different in their intellectual lineage as well. Um, yes. And they're different in the kinds of problems that they um, express. It's interesting that in so many of these situations, it seems like there is some like attachment to the term heteropessimism, despite all that Asa Saracen has done since then to disaffiliate the term from its etymologies, to disaffiliate the um, the kinds of like, you know, problems that's existing. I think it's just a good reminder that all of our writing, like we, we inevitably change our minds about we, what we think. It's never something that's completely permanent. I don't know. I feel like I've never felt... I've always had things that I've written that have been published that I that I look back at later and I'm like, should I really have said that or like what what did I what did I mean by that? So that, yeah, that's that's all that I've been thinking yeah. of. Yeah, I would say that also um, Chiara Giovanni's piece is really good in the way that it considers how heteropessimism as an adaptive strategy doesn't work the same for all people. Um, and it doesn't work the same in all kinds of literary genres. And one of the ways that, um, that one of the things that, um, that differs in, um, she's talking about romance novels that are written by and um, and about women of color and that are predominantly read by women of color, that those romance novels don't often turn around um, heteropessimism as an adaptive strategy, but in fact converge on a kind of hetero-optimism that allows them to envision coalitions forming between men and women of color. Um, so they're imagining different kinds of communities. Um, and so that's one of the ways in which 
um, a lot of the conversations about, you know, who is expressing heteropessimism, um, they often turn around, um, I don't know, like maybe these popular um, prestige literary fiction novels that are really centering white women or written by white women. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it seems like Kiara's essay is really directly responding to the sense that heteropessimism as a term or as it appears in fiction, at least, is a product of the literary elite. And I thought like her essay was just really brilliant. Um, and it also yeah makes me think about a lot of the different kinds of conversations I've had with different people in my life and how I think I was telling this to you, Annabelle a couple months ago, like a lot of um I'm like, I, some of the conversations about heteropessimism that seem really important to me or that seem really true to me and my experience, it's never a conversation that would have happened in like other kinds of social milieus I've been in in my life. And I don't, um, mm. and I don't think that's, yeah, I, it's just interesting to me that, that, um, with other kinds of, friend groups or different, yeah, different ways of socializing. I literally like structurally was, would have been impossible for me to think about this in a way. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, to pick up on a couple of points there, both, both what you've just said and, and that earlier point about, um, the way in which one's kind of critical stances on things can change and that we do that through our, our writing. Um, I wonder, while you're editing these pieces, was there anything in, in any piece in particular that you came across that expanded or changed how how you were thinking about heteropessimism, that changed what you kind of think of as how we define this, how we work with this? I mean, you've just mentioned uh, Chiara's piece perhaps doing that to some degree. Um, but any other ways in which the process of editing this cluster kind of caused you to reevaluate the way in which you want to work with this term. In addition to people we've already mentioned, like Jane Ward, Chiara Gio Giovanni's piece, Katie Cadu, I personally um, got a lot out of reading Ellie Anderson's work and her essay in this cluster. I thought it did a really good job of problematizing and thinking deeper about the notion of performativity that Asa Harrison uses in his definition of heteropessimism. Um, and I was sort of in a, the abstract to my essay. I was sort of like thinking about performativity in a similar way, but it, it kind of happened that Ellie's essay addressed it so beautifully that I didn't really need to, you know, spend a whole lot of time in my essay thinking about that. And I think that her contribution was just really important and really useful. Um, and yeah, but I would say that in general, it was such a great experience editing this cluster because, as we've already mentioned, a lot of people that we knew personally were able to contribute, um, and they were they already had like such good ideas. Um, it, yeah, it's it was. Um, I think that I really have to say that everyone I learned something from, and um, and it enriched and it enriched my initial idea. I would also say finally that I think there is a, an importance in producing collective work in general. That's something I really strongly believe. Um, mm. and there is something to be said for 
looking at a concept from many different angles and not necessarily reaching a conclusion, which is something that I feel like we are conditioned to do in our own academic work, like the product of a monograph or an article leads to one conclusion. But I think that a concept that's so rich and so, um, multivalent as heteropessimism, it like, it maybe doesn't need that kind of an approach or it would benefit better from the kind of work that we did in the cluster, which was opening it out and inviting it to go in all sorts of directions. Yeah, I think we see that very much in the kind of sheer uh, diversity of subject matter here that, that the contributors are, are kind of um, using heteropessimism as a, as, as a kind of lens to explore the fact that we have, you know, kind of um, sort of TikTok femcel culture, you know, in, in Annabelle Tseng's essay up against, um, you know, uh, Sarah Briette on kind of Instagram comics up against... Uh, uh, Katie could do on, on, uh, you know, on Petrarch. And when I say up against, I don't mean in a competitive sense. I mean, the sense that we're, we're kind of, um, putting them all in the same space and seeing what happens when, uh, when we use this single term in, in kind of so many different avenues. You know, as I was writing my essay, I was thinking about the constitutive hetero pessimist form of the novel looking at Sally Rooney as um, as an example, but also her readings of novels, including Ulysses, as um, also reaching this conclusion that the novel has a heteropessimist form by its definition, that it has to include an exploration of um, of queerness as a possibility or of um, of non-conventional heterosexuality or of disappointment with heterosexuality. But it's... Um, it, it always sort of ends with the marriage plot. At least that's what Rooney's novels epitomize or um, what Rooney's readings of, of novels, including Ulysses, suggest. Um, and I, my, I was really influenced um, as I was editing by a lot of the different contributors who made analogous arguments about completely different genreic forms. Um, so Ryan Lackey is talking about the heteropessimist form, I think he calls it the heteroformalism of um, of Ted Lasso, right? That's a very different cultural object. Um, and he's really concerned with the way that the failure of a heterosexual marriage is what makes possible the reconsideration of masculinity in that um, series. Sean Lambert, um, thinking about the rom-com and its decline and what that might say about the sense that heteropessimism is some kind of dominant affect of the present that makes the rom-com no longer um, economically viable. Um, and then you mentioned Katie Cadu's essay, but um, she's really arguing also that lyric poetry and, and, and lyric poetry, particularly written by men, um, has this fixation on a certain form of heteropessimist complaint that is about not only um, the labor that's required of men wooing women, but the labor that's required of them to produce poetry about uh, about wooing women. Um, and that this persists from the early modern period up to the contemporary period. Um, so, you know, although I was really thinking about the novel, um, all of these other... Uh, essays really made me think about the way in which this 
um, this kind of form might exist not always in the same ways and with the same outcomes in a variety of different genres, um, but also made me question, I guess, my original assumption that heteropessimist form might be somehow, um, you know, particularly an outcome of something about like the late capitalist market, that somehow there's something um, particularly economically, um, you know, viable about having a text that both is actually relatively normative in what it proposes, but also seems to suggest a kind of tension or critique that might make it prestigious or um, that might make it seem more intellectual, you know, but something like Katie's essay made me think about the really long history um, of the connection between literary genres and tensions in heterosexuality. I'm so glad that you mentioned the idea of, of heteropessimism as something perhaps produced by and or responsive to a kind of late capitalist marketplace, because that was literally the next question that I kind of wanted to, to ask mm -hmm. about. Great. Um, given that there are so many pieces, not all of the pieces by any means, but so many pieces in the cluster that are engaged with, with uh, you know, works of art and pieces of media that do very much explicitly exist in a kind of mainstream commercial sphere, if you like. We have Ted Lasso, uh, we have the contemporary rom-com, uh, you reference Sex in the City in your introduction. Um, I mean, even even Sally Rooney, you know, the author's Marxist politics notwithstanding, clearly operating in this kind of ecosystem of the kind of commercial publishing world and all the kind of uh, complicities and tensions that that kind of commercial success generates. And, and as you just kind of implied or indicated there, you know, it's it's unsurprising, right, that we find heteropessimism in works that are operating within a kind of capitalist rubric, given the kind of uh, the, the connection between the kind of heterosexual nuclear family and, and kind of capitalistic imperatives. But I suppose what I'm wondering is, do you feel that artworks kind of produced within that context only ever have the kind of the potential to do that kind of heteropessimistic performance? Or can they ever manage to function effectively as kind of heteropessimistic critique or critique of heteropessimism, I suppose I, suppose I should say more accurately? Is it possible to do that from within um, that kind of capitalistic sphere? Or are you always going to kind of be limited by those commercial imperatives that, that exist if you're, you know, making a show for Apple TV or, or Netflix or, or whatever it might be, or, or trying to sell, you know, books with a mainstream publisher? I mean, it's a great question. And it's a great question because it's something that um, we discussed as we were writing the introduction. And surprisingly, this cluster, which was about heteropessimism, actually, um, in a way, it brought us to a really old question and, and, a, and a huge question in, um, in critical theory, for example, which is what does the aesthetic do? Does it only um, reflect this sort of material conditions um, in which aesthetic objects are created, can it reflect them with a difference in a way that allows us to reconsider those conditions or see them anew? Um, and um, I do think that, you know, personally, I'm more interested in the latter answer, which is to say that, no, I don't think that um, these kinds of works of art that are being discussed in this cluster um, they can never be completely separated from the constraints of their material production. But actually, by virtue of being um, tied to those constraints, um, they might allow us to see what those constraints are. Um, 
they might make certain social formations visible by virtue of being connected to those social formations. Um, so, for example, in my in my thinking about Sally Rooney, um, I was thinking about you know the way in which people respond to her and um, the fact that people often respond to her with these ambivalent um, affective uh, responses where they say, well, I really liked it, but I don't think it was good (laughs) or I don't know how to feel about it or they love it very strongly, but they also hate it or they love it or hate it. Um, And I was trying to tease out what do those critical responses themselves tell us about not only Rooney's text, but also the kinds of social formations that people are implicitly, maybe without realizing it, recognizing in the text. Because a lot of um, a lot of Rooney's novels, you know, they generate actually in their very failures a kind of response that registers dissatisfaction with some of the conditions that went into creating them. Yeah, um, just I think that was <laughs> that was. Um a great answer. And I would just add that this was also something we were thinking of in our introduction. And we ended our introduction by suggesting that many of the contributors to our cluster have many different ideas of what these works of art can do in relation to heterosexuality, heterosexual attachment, heteropessimism. And they all reach somewhat different conclusions. Um, So, yeah, (laughs) I think that, um, again, something that is really beneficial about working on something like a cluster in this way is that we can have many different ideas about the relationship between aesthetics and aesthetic forms under capitalism. And I think all of them are kind of responding to what Annabelle defines to be the latter, um, the latter possibility that she just described, which is thinking that there's something interesting to say still, but I think that they all have different ideas of what that is. And then you have something like Hannah Wang's essay, which um, is actually sort of criticizing the discourse on heteropessimism um, and its influence on feminism as a kind of aestheticization of politics. So that's a much more um, perhaps negative, but at least ambivalent understanding of how um, how aesthetics might influence our ability to have political discussions. Yes. If I could maybe kind of zoom out and ask a kind of um, perhaps an even bigger kind of conceptual question here, I suppose something that I find myself wondering a lot as I read the essays in the cluster is the question of whether we want to approach heteropessimism as something that is inevitable as long as heterosexuality itself exists? Or or I suppose another way of asking that is, is it possible to to escape or to find reprieve from heteropessimistic attitudes without also seeking a reprieve from heterosexuality itself? Great question. <laughs> yeah. What were you going to say, Annabelle? <laughs> uh, well, I want to say it is possible to have a reprieve from heteropessimism without completely giving up on heterosexuality, but not without changing the conventions of heterosexuality or questioning them or reconfiguring them. So, um, 
it's not to say that heterosexuality, you know, in all of its possible forms is damned, <laughs> but that in the conventions that, you know, have been constructed for heterosexuality are limiting um, and are giving rise to dissatisfaction um, in ways that many of the essays in the cluster register. This is something I was thinking a lot about as I was writing my essay, which was considering a lot of the histories of second wave feminism in contemporary feminist discourse today. Um, and one of the questions that seems to be cropping up among a lot of feminist critics today, including Amiya Srinivasan, Andrea Long Chu, a lot of other people writing, um, you know, commentators online, things like that, is the question of desire and its relationship to politics. Um, and, you know, pe like there, it's the product of a debate that's still ongoing today about the, the degrees to which we can control our desires, the degrees to which we can know our desires, the degrees to which we should control them. Um, but, I don't know. I, I think I agree with Annabelle that there is, there is, um, there is hope for, <laughs> for the, for heterosexuality that also comes at the, um, cost of like needing to seriously reform what it is. Mm. And I think that for me and my essay, something that I was thinking about a lot is, ways of looking at history and how that relates to our ideas of what heterosexuality and what lesbianism are. And I think that the way in which heterosexuality is just sort of an endless repetition of itself that doesn't ever stop and consider what can be different, what can, what can change. I think that for me, a lot of hope for the future, you know, this is just in general, <laughs> speaking generally, not just about, um, not just about this cluster, the term, but I think generally speaking, a lot of hope that I find for the future or thinking of even utopian possibilities for the future mm. comes out of, um, considerations of history and looking back and like looking at different ways of regarding the past. So that's what I would say, um, in response to, yeah, is is there any way of saving heterosexuality? Is it just, is it completely doomed? But I also do, I don't know, I do tend to think that queerness isn't the only, shouldn't be the only possibility, I think. That faintly optimistic note on heteropessimism came from Caroline Goddard, before whom you heard Annabelle Barry. Annabelle and Caroline co-edited the heteropessimism cluster along with Jane Ward. You can find all the wonderful essays in the Heteropessimism Cluster at post45.org slash contemporaries now. That's also where you can find over 50 previous clusters, and we've got lots more coming your way soon, along with lots more Pod45 too. If you're interested in pitching us an idea for a cluster, you can do that by emailing us at post45contemporaries at gmail.com. Please do bear in mind, however, that we currently have a lot of clusters on the docket, so we're having to be very selective uh, in what we take on board. Uh, it may not be uh, the most conducive time to pitch. Further information on what we look for in a pitch, however, can be found on our website, which again is post45.org contemporaries. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And if you'd like to leave us a positive rating and review, that helps other people find the show. I've been your host, Michael Doherty. You've been listening to Pod 45.